Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 87 and glorious things of thee. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, first of all, your word is true, it's living, it's active, it penetrates into our hearts and into our lives, and it shows us and it tells us the truth about who we are and what we are, and about your Son, Jesus, as revealed in your word. Lord, we're so thankful for your word and for your Son, and that your grace and your word are truly sufficient, uh, because you are an unchangeable God who has come near in the person and work of Christ. So, Lord, as we look at this great psalm today, I pray, Lord, that we would learn and discover more of your grace and more about the work that you are truly doing in and through your people, through the church, for the honor and glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 87. Psalm 87 says this, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken. O city of God, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. (coughs) For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is our reading today from Psalm 87. You know, Old Testament Israel was geographically and culturally remote from all other nations. Jerusalem was nestled on the Judean mountains far inland from the coast and equally distant from any of the great rivers that tied together the ancient world. This isolation was reinforced by the many restrictions of the Mosaic law, which made it difficult for Jews to mingle with the Gentiles. Now, over time, their mindset was often hardened into hatred and contempt for outsiders. And still, an important strand of prophecy foretold the streaming of peoples into Zion's temple to worship Israel's God. Micah 4.1 proclaims, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. This prophecy, which finds a memorable expression in Psalm 87, is fulfilled in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 87, it contributes to this vision in anticipation that is almost unique to the Old Testament. It foretells not only that people from all over the world will worship the Bible's God, but also that they will come as children who have been born into the family of God. 
Now, when Jesus chided the scholar Nicodemus for not understanding the new birth, he said, you must be born again in John 3, 7. He might have easily approved his teaching by referring to Psalm 87, 5, in which the sons of distant nations are born in her, that is, in Mount Zion. O. Palmer Robertson comments, being born in Zion is the image used to depict the, the conversion of nations who inhabitants become citizens of the heavenly kingdom that is now manifest in the earth. So first today, we're going to consider the church as the city of God. First, we're going to consider the church as the city of God. And scripture presents a number of important images for the people of God, including the idea that the church is a temple and also a body in which the Holy Spirit dwells. In fact, this psalm employs two of the most important metaphors, metaphors, the church as a city and the family of God. And these two images provide the structure for this psalm. In fact, in verses 1 through 3 of this psalm, they celebrate the glory of God's holy city, Zion. And in verses 4 through 6, they declare the gathering of citizens from all nations to dwell in the city as God's family. In the final verse of this psalm, it depicts the people as singing and dancing for joy, ascribing praise to God for the abundant life that the Lord has given. And so our psalm begins in Psalm 87, verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. And the importance of this image can be perceived at the end of the Bible, where the church is seen as a glorious walled city inside of which grows the tree of life watered by the streams of living water and where God and the Lamb sit on the throne in Revelation 22, 1-2. St. Augustine took up this imagery for his great study of redemptive history called the City of God. His theme was Psalm 87, verse 3. Glorious things of you are spoken, O City of God. And Augustine made the point that history involves a contest between the two rival city-states. He says two societies have issued from two kinds of love. Worldly society has flowered from a selfish love which dared to despise even God, whereas the communion of the saints is rooted in a love that is ready to trample on self. The city of man seeks the praise of men, whereas the height of the glory for the other is to hear God in the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own boasting. The other says to God, Thou art my glory, thou liftest up my head. Now, Augustine did not invent the idea of the city of God, nor did he take it from this psalm. The New Testament employs this thinking as well. In Philippians 3.20, Paul wrote that our citizenship is in heaven. And whereas the earthly Jerusalem sat atop the Mount Zion, the writer of Hebrews declares that believers have come to a heavenly city. In Hebrews 12.22-24, the writer of Hebrews says this, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Now this pack summary, it describes the city of God as enduring eternally on the high mountain where God dwells, a city filled with heirs of God who are both justified and sanctified, blessed by the fellowship with God and with Jesus who sprinkled blood ensures their salvation forever. In Psalm 87, similar blessings are highlighted for God's city. John Calvin writes, what we're taught in this psalm may be summed up in this way. If the church of God far excels all the kingdoms and the, and the politi- polities of the world inasmuch as she is ever watched over and protected by him in all of her interests and placed under his garment. Now, when we talk about the city of God, what we're talking, and, and especially as it relates to the Christian, what we're talking about is the idea that the kingdom of God is both here and it is yet and it is not yet. It is here because Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished. That is when Jesus paid the penalty in our place and for our sin, the kingdom of God was what we call inaugurated. It was begun by the death of Christ and through the resurrection of Jesus. This, this is where the kingdom of God begins. And yet the kingdom of God is not yet because Jesus has not yet returned to establish his kingdom fully. And so what we're seeing here in this psalm as we talk about the idea of the city of God is that we live in between the times, the time of the kingdom of God beginning and the the time when the kingdom of God will be fully consummated. And in between these times are the times in which you and I as the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus, and dwelt by and signed and sealed and delivered by by the Lord Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection are presently living. And we are witnesses. We are to testify of the Lord's grace in these times that we're living in. Now next, we're going to see the song of the city. The song of the city. Now, Michael Wilcock has labeled the two halves of Psalm 87 as the song of the city and the song of the citizens. The song for the city is extolled in the opening section of this psalm. In verse 3 of Psalm 87, it says, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, this line inspired one of John Newton's best loved hymns. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. And there is scarcely an end to the glorious things that can be said of the city of God. William Plummer catalogs the glorious histories, the glorious predictions, the glorious songs, the glorious doctrines, the glorious laws, the glorious ordinances of worship, glorious promises and privileges that were attached to Zion. In fact, this psalm cites three glorious features of the city of God. The holy mount on which it stands, its sovereign founding by God himself, and the particular love that God assigns to its gates. Jerusalem was seated on Mount Zion in the hilly terrain of Judah. The Hebrew text identifies this in the plural mountains, reflecting probably on the fact that Mount Zion was located amid of complex hills. What made Zion special was not its prominence or its height, neither of which was exceptional, but rather its holiness. It is the holy mount, according to verse 1 of this psalm. It was designated as holy by God's sovereign decree. Moses had told the Israelites to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there in Deuteronomy 12.5. Mount Zion was holy, not only by God's choosing, 
but also by the presence of his temple and by his sacrifices there. Zion's sanctification makes a point that we today need to remember. What makes anything holy, whether it's a person, a place, or a thing, is the presence of God in his holiness. We may call an ornate gathering place a sanctuary, but unless God is truly worshipped there in spirit and truth, as John 4.24 says, nothing is actually holy about it at all. Many a lofty cathedral has become defiled by false teaching and unbelieving hearts, whereas the barest and the darkest hut is filled with the worship of true believers and the faithful preaching of the word of God is as holy as any other place on earth. And the same can be said of people. It is the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit that makes us holy. And without God, our lives, even the most impressive good works of religious shows remain unholy. And years after this psalm was likely written, the prophet Zechariah wrote to encourage the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple after its destruction. Some of them were depressed by the outward appearance, which was nothing compared to Solomon's original temple. But God said in Zechariah 2.5, I will be the glory in her midst. And so it was for Mount Zion in Psalm 87 verse 1. On the holy mount, God's city rested. And now the second glorious thing said about Zion is just as important. Not only did she rest on the holy mount, but she is the city he founded in verse 1. Jerusalem may have been conquered by by King David and its construction supervised by his son Solomon, but it was God who founded and established the holy city of Jerusalem. It was God who provided the Ark of the Covenant, which rested on Mount Zion, who caused his glory cloud to fill the temple in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, and who accepted the offering sacrifice there for forgiveness of sin. In short, the religious system established on Mount Zion was the gift of God's grace for the salvation of the people of God. And what is said of ancient Jerusalem is even more evidently true of the Christian church that it symbolized. It is sovereignly established by the grace of God. And we might think of this in two ways. The first is that the church has a foundation laid in the eternal decree of God. Charles Spurgeon writes, The foundation of the church, which is the mystical Jerusalem, is laid in the eternal, immutable, and invincible decrees of Jehovah. He wills that the church shall be. He settles all the arrangements of her calling, salvation, maintenance, and perfections. And all his attributes, like the mountains around uh, about Jerusalem, lend their strength for her support. We should also think of the church as being founded and established by the perfect and finished and sufficient work of Jesus Christ alone. Paul wrote that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20. This means that the church is built by the preaching of the word of God, the message of which is the saving achievement of Jesus Christ in his virgin birth, perfect law-keeping life, sin, atoning death, glorious resurrection, and mighty ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. With perhaps both of these in mind, God's sovereign decree and Jesus' finished work, Newton's famous hymn celebrates the ultimate security and assurance of those in the church. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. 
Now, verse 2 of our psalm adds a third glorious thing about the city of God when it says the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And just as a city is founded by God's election and the gospel of salvation accomplished there, she is beloved of God for the same reason. Why this city and why these people? Well, Moses told Israel that it was not because of any virtue of their own that God chose and loved them. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, which says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to you and your fathers. See, God loved the Israelites because he loved them with no cause other than his own gracious choice. And he loved Mount Zion for the same reason. And he further loved it because of his word that was preached there and the worship offered that was dear to his holy heart. And verse 2 specifies not only God's love for the city, but specifically that he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. God loved all the places where the Israelites lived, but it was the gates of Zion that he loved the most. This probably speaks of the gates as the centers of social gatherings when the people of the nation streamed into Zion for sacred assemblies. And we can well imagine how many Israelites agreed to meet at one or another of Jerusalem's gates when they arrived there for Passover or even some other festival. This will be analogous today to the gathered worship of the church on the Lord's Day. Private and even family worship are, of course, important and blessed by God. But it is particularly the assembly of his church inside the gates of Zion that is precious to the Lord. We are to love the church of, of which we are members and especially its public worship services. It should not be difficult uh, to get Christians to be, to be regular and even fervent in attending Sunday worship, realizing how precious, precious it is to God himself. O. Palmer Robertson writes of Zion Gates, At this place, God's people consecrated themselves to him. They brought their hearts as living sacrifices to the Lord. They sang the song of Zion. They rejoiced in God, the mighty Savior, who delivered them at the very gates of Zion from enemy armies. And now God's special love for his gates, it reminds us of the vital significance of our local churches. And at the same time, what this psalm is helping us to do is to love the entire worldwide church of all true believers. And in the age to come, when the church has come to our glorious maturity, all congregations and all denominations will have been assembled at the gates of the one heavenly city of God. We ought to be looking forward to that day with keen expectation and with an awareness. That awareness ought to spur us on to a love for all faithful, Bible-believing, and theologically sound local churches and further for all true believers. Now, one way in which we can be sure that Psalm 87 is fulfilled by the church in our time is to consider the song of the citizens in verses 4 through 7 of our psalm. And here we find the evil nations surrounding Israel incorporated into the city as fellow believers and worshipers. This never took place in the Old Testament, although numerous individual Gentiles became believers. Psalm 87, though, celebrates the fulfillment of a prophecy that is directed to the age following the coming of the Messiah, which is designated the latter days of redemptive history. Isaiah foretold echoing Micah in Isaiah 2.2, which says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations shall flow to it. 
Now, Psalm 87, 4 through 6, it anticipates the ingathering of believers from all nations in the most sweeping terms. Five nations are mentioned here, representing various directions on the map. To the south is Rahab, which in the Bible represents Egypt, as in Psalm 89.10, and to the east is Babylon. To the west is Philistia, with Tyre to the north. Cush is added, referring to modern-day Ethiopia, to represent the distant peoples outside the ancient Near East. These names provide us with the best guess as to when this psalm, Psalm 87, was written. And since Babylon is mentioned, and, and the northern menace of Assyria is not cited, it is likely that the psalmist wrote in the early or mid-7th century after Babylon emerged and conquered the Assyrian strongholds. The point yet, though, is that pagan Gentiles from all nations, south, east, west, north, together with distant lands, will become citizens of the city of God. And further, these five names, they also suggest the five characteristics out of which God's people are saved. The name Rahab for Egypt, it suggests her pride. Babylon was noted for sensuality. The Philistines were marked by long hatred of their neighbors. Tyre was a merchant city of greed. Cush was far off and largely ignorant of the truth of God. All these kinds of people were hostile or indifferent to Zion and its cause. And yet it is the glory of God's city, not merely that his enemies are defeated, but also that so many are brought inside and made wholehearted citizens. This roster of nations with their distinctive evil, it shows that a past record of sin does not bar anyone from the salvation of God's grace. In fact, we see the air of those who would ever define the church on a racial or even a social economic basis. And so even when the city of God was physically located on Mount Zion, the gates were open to all who would come to know and worship God on the basis of faith alone in Christ. And just as Psalm 87 depicts it, a healthy church today is one that welcomes sinners of all kinds and is used by God to make them true converts and disciples of Christ, whose allegiance is changed from the world to the Lordship of Christ, who is King over all. Now let's look at five characteristics of a church, a true church, a biblical church. Now, in this brief but remarkable description of God's city in the latter days, according to Isaiah 2.2, that is, the New Testament church, we can observe five significant characteristics of the true church. And the first is seen in Psalm 87, verse 4, describing people from these nations as those who knew me, know me. This indicates that the church's calling is to reveal the knowledge of God through its life and through its worship. This will take place primarily through the teaching of God's word. The church is not called to entertain members of the surrounding culture, to market worldly goods and services, however valuable they may be, or to gain secular power in society, but to shine forth the light of the knowledge of God for the saving of souls of men and women, boys and girls. As Jesus said himself in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. This means that saving faith must include essential biblical knowledge about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what God has done through Jesus for our redemption. It is not a 
It is not a saving knowledge of God merely to say that you believe in God or that you believe in Jesus Christ in the sense of mere acknowledgement. We must trust Christ alone in his saving work and surrender ourselves to the God of the Bible. This faith then results in a personal relationship with the King of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, like that between a sheep and a shepherd. As Jesus declared in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Saving faith also includes a relationship of knowledge and love with God the Father as a devoted and trusting child. Second, the church consists of citizens who are born again into God's spiritual family. Probably the most remarkable feature of Psalm 87 is its teaching that pagan members of enemy nations are not merely subdued and incorporated into the city, but become natural-born residents. And of, of converts from Egypt, Babylon, Philistine, Tyre, and Cush, it is said this one was born there in Psalm 87.4. But despite their worldly origin, once they come to by faith to Zion, God records them as having been born in the city. This one was born there in verse 6. This does not mean that worldly people are literally born a second time in Zion, but it means that the converts are received and even registered with the status of natural born citizens. H.C. Leipold notes that the citizens of God's city are accepted as true native members, although they had actually seen the light of the world within her walls. In this passage, it provides the idea of the church as the mother of the people of God. The early church father, Cyprian of Carthage, wrote, He cannot love God for his father who will not have the church for his mother. And the Septuagint, the LXX, the 3rd century BC Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 87.5, is slightly different. Instead of saying, And of Zion, it shall be said, the LXX reads, Mother Zion shall say, and it seems that the Apostle Paul was referring to this translation in Galatians 4.26 when he said, The Jerusalem above is our mother. Now, the Roman Catholic Church wrongly draws on this to teach that membership in the church determines one's salvation, a, te a teaching deeply at odds with the biblical teaching that God saves through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, taken rightly, Psalm 87 teaches that individual salvation makes one a member of the family of God and mandates one's participation in the visible local church. Moreover, the idea of Mother Kirk identifies the church as the primary vehicle for God's saving work in the world. And the most important point for us to understand here is the necessity of the new birth. Membership in the true church and citizenship in the heavenly Zion requires true saving faith through the new birth by the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. And he noted that only God can save by means of the regeneration that enables a heart to believe and trust in Christ personally. In fact, we need to note as well the wonderful privilege that the new birth gives to believers as we all become true members of God's family and native-born members of his city. Now, there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God or in the city of God. In fact, Hebrews 12, 23 goes so far as to call it the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In fact, firstborn were given preference in ancient families, but God's family consists entirely of firstborn children through union with Christ. Every Christian has, has the full loving attention and diligent care that a firstborn child receives from faithful and devoted parents. 
Additionally, the realization that all believers are native-born members ought to influence the quality of life within the church today. Now, there are regions of the country where newcomers are likely to be told they're never going to fit because they lack the proper family connections and were not native-born. But this attitude ought never to be the mood of the local church. To the people of God, the church is a family. And while many of us are blessed to have strong ties of love and support within an extended earthly family, we ought never to forget that we have been born into a family where many others do not have the same earthly support. We have privileges and obligations to our fellow Christians, especially in the local church, that that are as valuable and as important as those in our natural families, if not more so. In fact, as Psalm 87 suggests, our attitude towards new members and new converts ought to be one not of suspicion or indifference, but of loving interest and self-sacrificing welcome. Now, the third characteristic of the church, as seen in Psalm 87, is that its members are sovereignly chosen by God. Verse 6 shows that the action takes place by God's will and by God's choosing. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Now, we know from the New Testament that God predestined each of his people before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1.4 says. And yet here we find that as each of his elect people is actually brought to saving faith through the spiritual birth, his own hand registers that person as a full member of his city. This ought to give every believer a certainty of hope through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As as you trust in Jesus Christ alone, you can rest your soul on the certain knowledge that God has placed your name on the roll of his city. And when Christ returns, believers will hear the words of the great beatitude of Revelation 22:14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Murdoch Campbell urges us to note that God's act in writing down each soul who is born into his kingdom. So precious is their salvation to him that he does not leave this to men or angels, for only he knows all those who are his. We speak with all reverence when we say that he is the heavenly register in whose book of life are to be found the names of all who belong to the church of the firstborn. For the the final verse, it depicts the joy of the redeemed as they sing and dance before the Lord in verse 7. Sing and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. These are the words of men and women who are conscious that they were once strangers of God's people, having no hope and without God in the world in Ephesians 2.12, who realize that they have been forgiven and reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, and have received a place and a home in the eternal blessing of his city. And now, for all of its reverence and the serious nature of its work, the church is a joyful society of redeemed sinners who delight in their King and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you today, do you take joy in the wonder and the blessing of your salvation and membership in the city of God? John Newton was a brutal slave trader, once the slave of drunkenness, but he found freedom and abounding joy in Jesus Christ alone. The second stanza of his hymn from this song not only expounds his grateful spirit, but aptly describes the joy that flows to all Christians from the grace of God when he says, 
See the streams of living water springing from eternal love. While supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows? Their thirst assuage. Grace, which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. Now, the fifth characteristic of the true church is a passionate desire for the glory of God. Psalm 87, 7 says, All my springs are in you, the believer cries, with grateful praise to God. This is a way of saying that my spiritual life, your spiritual life, with the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood alone, the new birth and its spiritual uh, eternal life that is in the sovereign grace of God. This grace, it provides illumination. It opens our eyes. It it provides God's loving provision for all my soul's needs. It flows from the source of eternal life that is in the eternal grace and sovereign grace of God. Have you learned to rejoice in this grace for yourself? And do you desire that God would have glory in your life? Well, as Newton concludes his hymn based on Psalm 87, he urges us, therefore, to take a bold stand before the world and witness of the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ when he says, Savior, if of Zion's city I, through grace, a member am, let the world deride our pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldly's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Well, this is, uh, this is such a rich psalm for us because what it does is it, it helps us to see the beauty and the wonder more of the grace of God. And we're talking about in the Old Testament. This is why we need to, the whole counsel of God's word. We need to know what God has to say from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. Like a psalm like this, it teaches us about what it means to worship the Lord, and it, and it teaches us much about life in between the times. See, like we were talking about earlier, we live, in the, we live uh, the, the kingdom of God began when Jesus says it is finished in John 19.30. And the kingdom of God will be culminated when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom in its totality. And yet you and I, we live in the midst of the times. The times when the kingdom of God began and the, the times when the kingdom of God will be fully consummated. And in, in between these times, we have work to do. And yet scripture also says that our lives are but a vapor. And we need to remember that our time here on earth is but a vapor. We are here for a time and then we're gone. We're buried we, and we, we have new life fully realized in heaven. And so we live in between these times. We have work to do. We have, we're here for a reason. And that purpose is to honor and glorify God and to spread his glory to the nations for his honor and for the glory and the joy of people that they might come to saving faith in Christ and that we might make disciples who make disciples of the risen Lord Jesus. And the primary instrument that God uses today is the church. It's been said, and I agree, that the church is instrument A, vehicle A, in the plan of God. There is no plan B or C or D. If you are a child of God, you are a part of that primary mission. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day. 
to hear the word preached, to gather, to fellowship, to worship the, the name of Christ, there is absolutely zero time for playing around in the church. That is why we must go to a church that preaches the word of God in season and out of season, verse by verse, line by line, in context, that we might be well equipped and that we might be pointed to Christ so that we can grow in our knowledge and our skill of God's word. And so that then we scatter from our local church to wherever God has placed us, that that homemaking mother in the home raising her children, that that man going out into his vocation where where he is to carry forth uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we gather, we're, we're being instructed, we're being reminded, we're being encouraged, we're fellowshipping, we're getting to know the Lord and utilizing our gifts. And then we scatter to you to the place where God has called us to be in our vocation to, to help our provide for our family and much more. But even above those callings, which are vital, by the way, we are to go into the world from our local church to make disciples who make disciples for the honor and glory of our King and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's the marvel, that's the wonder that all the Bible points forward to from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between. Jesus Christ is the apex, the goal, the climax of all a biblical history. So take some time this week to reflect on the ways in which you can glorify God with your talents, with your gifts, with your abilities that others might know the glorious wonder of God's grace as revealed in the word as we've talked about today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that your word is true and that not only is your word true, but it's also sufficient. And not only is it sufficient, but it tells us of a sufficient Savior and King who has come, who has bled, who has died, and who has rose, and is yet, and who has ascended, and who is yet soon to return. So, Lord, we're, we're reminded today of that truth of your Son. We're confronted by the various ways in which we have been apathetic to that truth. And, Lord, we confess our need of you. Help us, Lord, to live in dependence on you, not just in this moment, but moment by moment and day after day, minute after minute, even week after week, decade after decade until we go to be with you. And help us, Lord, to be about spreading the gospel of your son and of your king wherever we are for the honor and glory of Christ alone. I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.